Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good morning. This is Jay Levine, your host of the uh, Antitrust Law Source podcast, and I am once again joined by uh, John Carney, uh, my colleague and uh, partner who is the co-chair of our healthcare and cannabis law groups, and uh, as you probably know from our, our last time, is well-versed on legislation. He is a former three-term uh, assemblyman in the Ohio House of Representatives, and it's great to talk to you, John. Thanks for having me, Jay. So we ended off the last podcast. You were talking about sort of, you know, healthcare and especially for healthcare, there's there's going to be a lot of um, inspection and inquiries, investigations as to, you know, what they've done with some of the money they've done and, and some of the other things. But let me ask you before we kind of get into particulars, what are the top two, three things that you think the healthcare industry in Ohio and elsewhere, what have been the biggest challenges as a result of COVID? And I don't just mean that, oh my God, they, you know, they're seeing a lot of COVID patients now, but in terms of sort of business-wise, how has COVID affected them from a, an operational and a business and strategic manner in the past? Well, unfortunately, you know, the, the world and the United States for that matter, were, were kind of caught off guard for the pandemic. So a lot of the things that your listeners probably heard a lot about in the news, personal protective equipment was in short supply. Um, So you had a a number of things that happened right at the outset because of that, which was, you know, immediately we kind of stopped all elective procedures um, because we were short on personal protective equipment and we wanted to make sure that that was available for our frontline healthcare workers who were dealing with COVID. So that really paused a lot of things for surgeons who were doing elective cases for individuals. Um, and, and that was a significant issue right at the outset. Fortunately, within the last couple of months, they've been able to return to providing those services. So I think in your major metropolitan markets, things have recovered relatively quickly. I think if you're a hospital in a rural area and you're not in a major metropolitan market, there's some real concern about those healthcare providers surviving. And Hmm. I don't think people fully recognize that this is going on, but when we shut everything down for COVID and uh, the government basically said, look, we don't want elective procedures to be done, your more outlying hospitals, they were doing knee replacements, they were doing Hmm. cardiac procedures, they were doing other things that really generated the income to keep those, those guys afloat. And I think that there's serious concern that you may start to see some of these more outlying hospitals and healthcare providers fail because of the, the finances of this year. Now, there, are, there were federal dollars available and a number of them applied to get CARES Act dollars and, and that may prop them up. Um, but I, I think that there is a real concern that the disparity in access to healthcare that we had at the beginning of the pandemic where those in more outlying areas had more scarce resources could actually get worse as a result of the pandemic. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this. So, you know, like moving forward, I'm very interested in it, obviously, as an antitrust lawyer who's done a lot of work in healthcare. Do you see them failing or do you see them uh, merging or being bought up by other regional systems um, and becoming, you know, centers of excellence type of institutions? I mean, what do you think the possibilities are for those types of uh, institutions who may or may not, you know, survive? I think you're going to see some of both. I I think that you've already seen 
you know, a number of larger healthcare systems start to buy up small hospitals in more rural areas and then try to do telehealth from the main campus. So you've got your specialists who are on the main campus. They're talking to individuals who are in more your outlying areas. And then when they need more specialized care, they're saying, okay, you need to drive into the city and we'll provide that care here. I think some of them though are not going to look like attractive risks for some of these systems and and they'll just go away. I mean, even before the pandemic, you started to see some of these more uh, rural county hospitals struggle to survive and some of them fail, um, oftentimes because I don't think there was a health system that's, that thought that the economics would work well. And so, and I think, you know, obviously with the federal government spending so much during the pandemic, you know, between the, ta- the Trump tax cut and then spending so much during the pandemic, the question is going to be, okay, well, what does happen with Medicaid expansion? And are those dollars available, especially when you're talking about these rural areas where you've got a lot of people who are on Medicaid, um, and if they do not have Medicaid expansion and access to a healthcare plan, then it's gonna be even less attractive for other systems to come in and wanna buy them because they're wondering how they're gonna get reimbursed for the care they're providing. Would the state take over the hospitals in some cases? At least in Ohio, that seems very unlikely. I don't know about other states, um, but, you know, I mean, years ago, the state of Ohio got out of the mental health business. We had mental health hospitals. Those got closed down. I think there was, you know, to this day, there's a lot of discussion about how that was a bad choice, but you don't see the state reversing course on that. And and frankly, all the states are going to be super cash strapped too. And they, you know, because people have lost their jobs and income tax has gone down, you know, I, I think states are in a much worse position than the federal government because they cannot do what the federal government does, which is deficit spend. I mean, right. most states have a balanced budget amendment. Um, Ohio certainly does. Um, and that's that's going to put them in a really difficult position to come and, and be, you know, riding in to save any of these hospitals, I think. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, that in and of itself will have, you know, domino effect because if people in these rural or outlying areas cannot get health care or can't get health care as easily, they won't get the health care and may also start to shift demographics of people, you know, may not want to move out to areas where, you know, there isn't a hospital for 60 miles. Well, and I think, you know, you're seeing what a lot of the public health professionals predicted at the beginning of the pandemic, which was, you're going to have virus concentrated in municipal areas. Large cities are going to have a number of cases. And then months will pass by and it will start to creep into rural areas where there's less healthcare infrastructure and people will end up dying at home. They, they won't go in, you know, maybe they already have an underlying health condition, but there's not anything readily available and you'll start to see spread in the rural areas. Um, and, and that's certainly, you know, I mean, now, right now, the largest outbreak of COVID is in uh, you know the middle of America, right? Mm-hmm. Iowa and a number, of, you know, Arkansas got hit badly. A number of these states, they have some of the worst healthcare infrastructure, and you've got a large population of people who have underlying health conditions. I think it's you know it's going to be an ongoing struggle for the United States as you have poor rural areas being struck with COVID and just not the infrastructure available there to help those individuals. Interesting. Okay. Well, so that that seems to be one, you know, significant change in the healthcare industry where it it may very well be that 
care will just not be as readily available in a lot of these types of areas. What about, you know, in more urbanized or more uh, populated uh, regions? What do you see? You know, you're right. Everything's sort of come back a little bit, although I, I, I can only tell you from a personal anecdote, my, my wife's rotator cuff surgery was delayed because of the uh, um, and she finally had it in June. But even to this day, when she goes for physical therapy, the physical therapy place is not as populated as it normally would be because you have to still provide social distancing. And and um, I don't think that all of their physical therapists are uh, fully employed. They're trying to give them all as much work as they can. But if you're limited to a physical space and you have to give social distancing, you just can't uh, you just can't get it done. So it seems that, you know, this is going to go on for a while and at least. I don't I don't know about where you guys are, but I know where I live, we're still in kind of phase two and we're still pretty, uh, pretty strict. So it, it seems that this is going to go on for a while. But but even sort of predicting into the future, what what changes do you see happening? What are responses do you see from health systems or providers generally? How what what changes do you see in the offing? Well, you know, before the pandemic even started, private equity over the last several years has gotten very engaged in buying up practices across state lines and really trying to figure out what are the practice areas that are most lucrative, where we can cut overhead expenses. And I think that that's going to continue to accelerate where private equity is identifying the most lucrative healthcare uh, specialties, and they're trying to then bring those under one umbrella and then you know cut overhead expenses. And so I, I think that's gonna continue to accelerate as really winners and losers in healthcare are picked out. Where can you make money? Where can you lose money? And then what, what does that mean for these hospital systems? Because really the manner in which hospital systems have been funded is, okay, well, we've got an emergency room, uh, you know, we're providing care that we're losing money on, but we have these high-end specialists, you know, cardiologists, orthopedic surgeons who are able to essentially make money. So it offsets the loss of providing, you know, ER care. Well, you know, with private equity buying up these groups and they're not, you know, they're not directly employed by the hospitals. I'm interested to see how the economics of that ends up working out. I, you know, I talked to a number of the hospital CEOs um, at the beginning of the year about private equity. And I think that I was surprised that they weren't more aware of how engaged private equity was on bringing these various specialties together, because for a long time, you know, when I started 20 years ago, hospitals didn't want to employ physicians anymore. They mm -hmm. said, we're not going to employ them. We're paying them too much money. This doesn't work. Well, then the physicians started setting up ambulatory surgery centers and yes. they became the competitors <laughs> of the hospital, right? Right. And the hospital said, well, this isn't working very well for us. We need to go buy back these folks. And they brought a number of the high-end specialists in. They bought the ASC. Well, at the same time, private equity started to do similar things. They right. were coming in and saying, we're going to buy this stuff up. So, so now, you know, the question for the hospitals are, okay, well, what does that mean for us? Are we going to continue to compete with private equity? Are we going to buy these practices from private equity? Um, and, and I think, you know, PE versus hospital employed models that's going to be a big discussion point as we move forward because, you know, if you're a private practice, you don't have to have an emergency department. You don't have to provide care right. to, you know, folks who don't have coverage. 
That's not the case for hospitals. And so um, I think the business model is going to continue to evolve, but it, it is kind of a fragmented healthcare system that we have in the United States right now. And I'm, I'm interested to see how these dynamics play out. But what I would say is private equity is going to be heavily engaged and continuing to do what they were doing before the pandemic. And that's going to have an impact on healthcare delivery. It's interesting that you say that the, the past is somewhat prologue, I guess. In the 90s, when I started to do healthcare work, it was uh, physician practices and all these sorts of things were disengaged from the hospital. And then, you know, the hospital started uh, acquiring practices, having IPAs. There wasn't an ACO term yet, but having kind of ACO models because they wanted to have integrated care under one hospital system. And you know, I had a, a few clients for whom we did dozens and dozens of acquisitions and the like, including of other hospital systems that some of which were challenged by the federal government. You know, we won, thank God. But as in you moved in into the some of the 2000s, some of the hospitals didn't really want to be uh, dealing with that anymore and started selling off some of those practices, some to private equity, some, you know, back, you know, the physicians didn't like having to you know, answer PL to uh to a hospital CEO. And then comes along Obamacare and ACO and we see sort of them coming back again. And now it sounds like uh and I've done several acquisitions for private equities as well. Um and it, from an antitrust perspective, it you know, the regulators get a little bit worried because obviously you are coalescing a lot of services under one banner. And what does that mean for the ability of insurance companies to essentially negotiate one against the other if there isn't another? And so I, I, I wonder, do you see hospital systems themselves trying to get together to ward off private equity or at least just try to build their bottom line better? Yeah, I mean, I would think that at, at some point, hospitals have to start to recognize, okay, you know, either we're able to coexist with these other practices here, or we need to start thinking about acquiring before private equity acquires, or even potentially being the one who purchases the practice from, from private equity. And I, I, you know, I mean, again, at least with some of the folks I've talked to, it seems like the hospitals were a little slow to come to the fact that this was happening in such a significant amount across, uh, you know, at least across the Midwest. I've seen a ton of it. I've, you know, North Carolina, I think a lot of it started there with Durham practices. But, I, I, you know, I think the hospitals are going to have to become more engaged and understanding, okay, how do we make this work? And, and I think for young physicians, too, I mean, one of the things I'm seeing with young physicians is, you know, they're coming out and they're saying, I've got all this debt. So I'll go be employed by a hospital. The hospital will give me a recruitment agreement that essentially helps me pay down the money that I spent for medical school, et cetera. But then what does that mean down the line? Well, they probably sacrifice some of their upside compensation if they own their own practice. But the same thing's happening if you go to a practice that's owned by private equity, right? I mean, if you join a practice and private equity has purchased it, likely your compensation is going to be lower than it would be if it was just owned by the physicians in the group because private equity needs to take its share out. And so I'm interested to see what that ends up doing for physicians generally. Do we have um, you know, folks who are less interested in becoming doctors across the country because in order to become a physician, you got to spend over a quarter million dollars in student loans. And then when you come out, the earning potential is less than it has been in the past because 
either private equity is taking its share or you're going to work in a hospital model where you know the the upside comp is lower and I, right. I think in both those models the upside comps low i mean certainly when i look back at cardiology groups that were independent that i've represented in the past and what those individuals are now making since they've gone over to work in an employed model they're making less money now they don't right. have the same obligations and responsibilities to the business uh, but their upside comps lower and the same with private equity once you're purchased by private equity uh, your upside comp is lower um, you're not going to get your same production and so there's a windfall profit to the owners at the point where private equity purchases um, but for anybody who wasn't an owner at that point or gets employed later on they're going to come to realize, well, I'm making less money than I would make if I went to an independent practice. And so right. um, I, I kind of wonder what that means for talent and where does talent go and, and what does that mean for the overarching healthcare system in the United States? Interesting. What about systems themselves? Do you see them not just uh, potentially acquiring practices, but trying to collaborate or or frankly merge to become a a bigger more regional system so as to somehow try to improve their bottom line and and recoup some of the losses they've had and deal with some of the, maybe the talent drain that private equity has has you know done to them yeah absolutely i mean we're we're doing work on projects with a number of our clients where even if they're not merging they're looking to create affiliation agreements with uh, other hospital systems, other large multi-specialty physician practices, you know, really trying to create a regional network where, um, you know, they're working in conjunction with each other, e even if it's through, you know, to your point, you know, an ACO, okay, well, let's get the members to join the ACO, and then we can coordinate our activities, and it creates some shields to some of the federal False Claims Act and start getting anti-kickback. You can do things if you join an ACO right. that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of that. I mean, I, I think cooperation and collaboration amongst, uh, you know, like I say, multi-specialty practices and, and hospital systems is going to be something that becomes, you know, just interwoven as part of the healthcare system. We see it locally here. Central Ohio Primary Care um, just provides primary care services. Um, and and they are independently owned. Um, they've become so big that you know really all the hospital systems are working with them. Right. Um, and I think it's out of necessity, not necessarily out of you know a desire to just use COPC. <laughs> it's just okay. Well, that this is they're providing the referrals to us to do the specialty work. They're the ones on the front line doing primary care work, and so we're going to work with them. Right. Um, and just you know just one more thought on the primary care front. I mean, I do think there's. There's a lot of debate about whether or not you're still going to have a lot of family practice physicians anymore, you know, general practitioners. Does that go away in favor of advanced practice nurses and other allied health professionals providing that care? I think there's a decent chance that that's the case. I'm certainly right. seeing that amongst health, hospital systems. Hospital systems are saying we're going to employ allied health professionals at two-thirds what we would pay a general practitioner. Yep. Um, and we're just not going to do that work anymore. I, I can tell you on a personal level, that's true. My, my daughter is a PA in, uh, in New York. And uh, essentially, um, I, I won't say where, but she's, she's in the pediatric hematology and oncology practice. And essentially, she's functioning as a fellow where they're essentially hiring PAs and NPs to function as um, doctors and fellows and, and the like. And I, I think that's probably from a both from a financial standpoint as well as 
um, the fact of the matter, it is harder to find doctors who are interested to go into certain specialties. And so it, it may be at a need. With all of these consolidations, obviously the, the federal government, the antitrust division, the especially the Federal Trade Commission are very obviously they, they, they are very vigilant about making sure uh, whether these combinations create any sort of market power, you know, and, and the like. And we see these challenges almost uh, daily. But you also see, I know, uh, mainly a lot of uh, talk from the Democrats where they were um, worried about uh, not just whether these consolidations would raise prices or not, but uh, the fact of the matter, whether it would cause capacity problems, should the pandemic get any worse, or should there be another pandemic of other proportions? Are, are these consolidations essentially going to curtail our ability to handle the cases that come forward? And therefore, there's a lot of even now state legislation, which you had never seen before, that uh, are uh, prohibiting certain types of mergers, especially in the healthcare. I, do you see that as being a real problem that these consolidations are, are going to cut down on our capacity uh, to deal with spikes and future pandemics? So it's it's a case-by-case -case basis, Jay, because I think that there are situations where you've got hospitals that are cherry-picking certain portions of who they are going to gobble up and say, well, we really this is the only part of this that we care about. We're going to just demolish the rest of it because it's not. And especially with university medical centers and things like that, where, you know, the, the mission of a university medical center is not necessarily to just make as much money as you possibly can make. You're, you're educating residents and fellows and, you know, you have a broader mission to the state. But if you're a, you know, a, a private hospital or even a non-for-profit hospital that's just, you know, focused on your own bottom line, you may come in and say, okay, well, what we really want is we want to take this residency program because then we can develop the folks that we need as specialists and then just move them into our system. But the rest of the care that they're providing to indigent people or whatever, we really, that's not what we want right. to be doing. And, and so I think that is a real fear. And, and certainly there's discussions like that going on around Ohio and around the country right now where systems are kind of coming in and cherry picking what's going to be the most helpful and, and help them grow uh, the economics the best, but not necessarily for the overarching healthcare system. And I, I think that's why, you know, certainly looking at it from a public policy perspective, the idea that you're going to pay based upon health outcomes as opposed to just the quantity of services people are receiving right. certainly seems to be a, a move in the right direction. I mean, as somebody who put together a lot of imaging centers 15 years ago for people to get MRIs and CT scans because we could get over $2,000 a scan, th that's all changed a lot. I mean, we're really driving to say, look, it's not about just the number of scans you do. It's about what's the end result to the individual sure. patient. And so, I mean, again, that's going to come down to who are, you know, your elected leaders on these topics. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, the right and the left seem, you know, kind of out of touch with where we need to be on this stuff. This is this shouldn't be political. This should be, OK, well, what do we do to put every American in the best position to get the health care they want? And that doesn't include us just providing health care for everybody for free, but it also doesn't have an unregulated market where people right. can just do whatever they want. And 
I, you know, the middle seems to be lost there in Washington, yeah, well, D.C., so I, I hope it's found. I think I think that could be said about a lot of things, but I, I certainly appreciated <laughs> a former politician's statement that this this shouldn't be political. Um, that's probably uh, a truism. But I, I do wonder that, you know, as these cherry pickings or as these kind of consolidations move forward and some of their consequences become more realize, do you think that will aid or cause state legislatures, I'll leave D.C. out because we just don't know what D.C. will look like, but do you think that will cause state legislatures to start enacting legislation that start to restrict and outlaw some of these um, acquisitions and consolidations? I think absolutely, Jay. I think that's going to happen in states. And I, I think it comes back to you know a discussion we had on the previous podcast, which is what's the makeup politically of uh, you know your state government? and And unfortunately, I think it's being led by ideology on both sides instead of you know solid facts and evidence-based policy, you've got ideology that's driving these discussions. And when you talk to the elected officials about the fact that, okay, well, that's that's an ideology that doesn't substantively impact <laughs> what we're doing. They don't a lot of them don't want to hear it on both the left and the right. They really want you to just they've got their own confirmation bias. They want you to come in and tell them that what they're telling you is correct. And when mm -hmm. you tell them, uh, you know, I mean, a perfect I talked to a member of the General Assembly about a hospital that was in their district that now has been closed. And they were telling me that the CEO of the hospital didn't want Medicaid expansion. And I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. Of course they want Medicaid expansion. You're in one of the poorest counties in the state of Ohio. We were getting rid of hospital payments for uncompensated care, so they desperately needed it. But unfortunately, the, the ideology of the district said, well, Medicaid is for people who aren't working hard, so we don't want that even though they had a larger proportion of hmm. people who were Medicaid eligible than most urban districts did because it was a very poor rural district. Well, that hospital's gone now. Um, and unfortunately, I, I think, you know, again, we need more public policy making that's built upon evidence-based policy instead of ideology. And that doesn't seem like it's coming anytime soon, unfortunately. Hmm. I mean, we will have redistricting because of the census. Um, and I'm hopeful that we end up with more balanced districts so you end up with more pragmatists, regardless of whether they're Republicans or Democrats, just pragmatists who are willing to listen to the people who know more than them on this subject matter. Wow. Somebody who, listening to uh, to someone who knows more than you is a, uh, is a particularly uh, daunting task these days, but um, but nevertheless, but if but I'll tell you after listening to you, John, if you want to run, sign me up. I'll I'll, I'll work on your campaign. Uh, uh, I'm staying at Porter Wright. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of figured that, but uh, but hey, um, but uh, this has been uh, really enjoyable. Um, hopefully, um, sometimes we'll get to uh, talk about your other hat, the cannabis law practice, which uh, which is um, you know sort of new and 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 exciting and can only imagine all of the uh, sort of ins and outs and intricacies of, of, of such a practice. But uh, thank you very much. This has been great. John Carney, my uh, my guest and uh, partner and, and chair of our healthcare and cannabis practice. Thank you very much for joining me today. 
Thanks so much, Jay. Really appreciate it. And I hope uh, you and yours stay safe and healthy and uh, and don't get too COVID fatigued. And I hope for all the listeners out there that remains true. Um, this has been Jay Levine, uh, your uh, host for Antitrust Law Source. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose, and you should not consider it as such. It does not necessarily reflect the views of the firm as to any particular matter or those of its clients. All rights reserved.